Friends, we are indeed in Acts chapter 4. Again, I had two choices this Sunday. One on Thanksgiving weekend would have been to launch into chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira being struck dead before the Lord. Or two, spend Thanksgiving weekend digging back into one of my favorite paragraphs in the book of Acts, and we're going to do the latter. So I love, love, love this paragraph. I'm in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. We're going to dig a little deeper than we even did last week. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of the land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that that same great power and great grace would fall upon us in the gospel, that we would be this kind of church, that we would bear these kinds of fruits, that the world would sit up and take notice and wonder at the hope that is within us. Would you change us, we ask this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, last week we dug into this paragraph and we said that there are a lot of good working definitions of the church, but one of them that we find here, which is excellent, is the church is a believing community of great power and great grace. The church is a believing community of great power and great grace that comes right out of verse 33. We said last week that God fills us through the gospel with this power and with this grace that we as believers, we together as the church, we overflow with this in our ministry to other people. So all the good that we have comes from God into us and then works its way outward amongst ourselves as a church and in this city together. I was reading a book this week and it started like a lot of books do with the acknowledgments and in the acknowledgments, the author said, I had a lot of friends input in this book. And so whatever you read here that's helpful has come from them. And whatever you read here that's in error, that's my own doing. That kind of acknowledgement could go to the front at all of our lives, the story of our lives. Whatever you see here in this story that is of any good or any help, that is all from God and all the errors are my own. That's why we have these great little Thanksgiving verses that are sprinkled all throughout the Bible, everywhere you look, like in places like Colossians 3.17. Listen to this. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God. Now I'm doing all the work, words and deeds. Who's giving thanks to whom? Is it God giving thanks to me? Wow, you finally did something right. Thank you for doing that. No, it is me giving thanks to God, me realizing that whatever I say, whatever I do, all comes from him, all is from the gospel. I give thanks back to him. I experience joy in my week. That's a fruit of the spirit. Thank you, Lord. 
I choose to say a kind word over a critical word that comes from God. Thank you, Lord. I, I choose trust over fear that comes from God. Thank you, Lord. It is God's pleasure to fill his church to the brim with his goodness that we overflow in word and in deed to the praise of his marvelous grace. That's who we are as the church, reflecting the glory of God. Now, when we're thinking about the church that's being filled up with great power and great grace, two of the fruits that come to the fore in the early church, and we'll see for good reason, are property-selling generosity and heart and soul unity. Those are two things on display in our passage in the church that are supernatural. You can't wing these things. You can't just grunt these things out. You can't produce them in the flesh. They are supernatural fruits that are coming to the fore that all happen because of God's gift in the church. So I want to look at those two fruits, but before we even do, I want to ask us all a very tough, very practical question. Which one of these fruits is more costly? To sell your stuff and give it away? or to be a unified body of believers? Which one's going to cost us more? Well, I'm going to argue that it is the latter. It's unity that's the most expensive of the two. And so we're going to start with the cheapest way to get involved in Christ's resurrection community. And the least expensive way to do that as a believer is to Give away your stuff until it hurts. That's it. It's cheap and it's easy compared to the other one. So let's start with property selling generosity. Now this is awkward, but Luke talks a ton about money. It comes up constantly in the book of Acts and it came up constantly in the book of Luke. He's always talking about money. He doesn't realize that's a taboo topic in the church that a pastor can't get up and preach about giving. That, that's a no-no. Luke doesn't know that. And so he just goes on writing about money because I think he takes Jesus's words on the matter very seriously when Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Matthew 6, 21. We've said this before, but he doesn't say, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. In other words, when you're looking for a person's heart, you don't first ask them about how they're doing. You see where their treasure is, and that will lead you to where their heart actually is. It's the treasure that comes first that shows you a person's heart. So if you're sitting with a friend this week and you ask them how they're doing spiritually and they say, man, I've got this wonderful, vibrant, happy relationship with God right now, you say, that's fantastic. Can I see your family budget? <laughs> because that is what will show you what is actually happening within a person's heart. Words are cheap. Money is not. You show me where you spend your money and I'll see where your heart is. So Luke in the book of Acts, he goes on a treasure hunt because he's looking for the church's heart. Chapter two, the church is selling their possessions and giving them to the poor. Chapter four, our chapter, the church is selling her possessions and giving to the poor. Chapter six, things get organized. And at this point, now there's this daily distribution that happens from the church to the poor in her midst 
daily working that out practically, when Luke tracks down the tax deductible receipts to find out where the church's heart really is, he finds it with God in his care for the poor. I want to look at this very closely and I want to understand practically how was the church actually doing this. And so we're going to see this generosity in four points, four M's, okay? Number one, this generosity was motivated by grace. So verses 33 and 34 are not separate thoughts. They're meant to be read together. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. I take that as a a double meaning. There wasn't a needy, rich or poor person among them because every single one of them had access to God's immeasurable grace. Nobody was hard up for grace in the church. And the second meaning of that is nobody had a physical need that was unmet because when that grace pours into the church, we can't help but be motivated by that and share what we have with other people. So the first point is, The church was motivated by grace, not law. They were motivated by the gospel. Number two, because of that grace, they then moved towards the need. Now, verses 33 and 34 say again and again that these gifts were given to actual physical needs. They were going to meet needs within the body. So if you think about how we practice this today as a church, When we give of our tithes and offerings, we give generously to the church, that goes to the entire mission of the church to be a great commission church, to make disciples who make disciples, to plant a church that plants churches. That's the vision of the church. That's what giving goes towards. And part of that giving specifically goes towards helping our members who are in need. That's what the deacons do in our body. They oversee those funds and when a member has something in need, they come to the deacons and they can find help for that need. That's part of what we do in our giving. So then I guess my question is, if I'm doing that in the church, suppose that I use kind of the tithe as a benchmark and I'm giving away 10% of my income or more and I give it to the church, but then I happen to bump into a fellow believer who has a physical need, what should I do if I've already given some of that money away? And I would say, number one, of course, introduce them to the deacons. That's what the deacons are here to do. They would love to respond to that need. But I think there's a challenge here that number two, we ourselves give as we are able. We ourselves respond even after we've given to the church to the need that a fellow brother or sister is experiencing. It's kind of sweet when we get in those seasons as a church, which we've often been, where the deacons are asking me, what are the physical needs we don't see any because the life groups are responding with their own wallets to what they're experiencing within their group. Those needs don't even make it to the deacons because the believers are doing this. That's what the apostle John says. He's here, he's watching this whole thing happen. And so when he writes 1 John later, he says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? 1 John 3.17. That's a heart and treasure assessment that John is making. Don't tell me you have a close relationship with God if you see your brother in need and do not respond. I don't want to hear another thing about your religion. It holds no weight with me. 
where your treasure is, where you are responding to actual physical needs, that's where your heart is. So as this thing is, is motivated by grace, it's moved towards actual physical needs. Number three, it is maintained by voluntary contributions. That's important. These were voluntary contributions. And herein lies the difference between communism and the earliest church community. The church had a right to personal property and the church chose in certain instances to give up that right and to give away that property freely. We're actually going to make that point next week with Ananias and Sapphira because Peter argues with Ananias, this property was yours. You didn't have to sell it. You owned it. It was yours to keep. And even after you sold it, you could have done anything with the money at all. The problem is not that you had to give it up. It's a different problem that Ananias struggled with. Your property is yours. You skim through the book of Acts and you will find saint after saint that made the decision to keep their house and to keep their property and open its doors and its dining room tables so that the church could fellowship one with another around those tables and that they could meet as the body of Christ. In these days, there's no such thing as a church building. Every single church met either in the, uh, uh, the temple portico or they met in people's houses. That's where the church gathered because people had personal property. So there's no like compulsory liquidating of every believer's asset, right? And in the flesh, we all take a big sigh, like, okay, because I just bought a paddleboard and I love that thing and I didn't want to give it up. And okay, so this is not mandatory. That's great. And, and, I, and I often hear sermons skew towards this is not communism. Capitalism is okay. We're fine. And we take a deep breath. But verse 32 supernaturally, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Can you even imagine that kind of holding of personal property? One of the very first English words we ever learn as a baby in America is mine. This thing is mine. Go get your own thing. It's mine. And yet in this kingdom, one of the very first words we learn as a baby Christian is ours. Whatever I have is ours to share with each other. I may have an American right to personal property that is protected by the Constitution and I can go to court over the thing and defend that right, but something greater than the Constitution is here it is the risen Christ and his kingdom which upends every right that an American or natural government has given me and all of a sudden that right is worth nothing because my rights, myself, my house, my home, my dining room table, everything about me has been bought with a price. I'm not my own, but I glorify God with my body and I glorify God with my stuff. It's all his. It's all his to do his bidding. So it's maintained by voluntary contributions that are lit on fire by the gospel of grace. And number four, beautifully, it's modeled by Barnabas. 
You get that little clip at the end of this giant in the church, Barnabas. We're gonna hear more about him and his fingerprints by God's grace are all over the early church, but the best discipleship is modeled. It's like, okay, I'm reading these verses and I'm hearing this sermon, but would somebody get up and put this thing on and show me how to do it? If you've got any questions at all of what it looks like to sell property, liquidate your stuff and give it away, go talk to Barnabas. He's a leader in the church and he's just done it and he can tell you how much it hurts and he can tell you how happy he is and go follow him. Church today, if you're struggling with this, find the most generous people in our midst and follow after them. Learn from them and do what they're doing. Isn't it sweet that a leader in the early church is introduced not by his awesome gifts, but by his grace? Like the very first scene, he's not being served as a leader, but he's pouring out his life and serving other people. That's beautiful. And that's how this is modeled among us. This kind of discipleship is modeled for us. So you've got this property selling generosity that's motivated by grace, moved by need. It's maintained by voluntary contributions. It's modeled by Barnabas. God's great power, God's great grace crucifies my claim to my stuff. It's gone. I have no right to it anymore. But that's the easy one. Crucifying my claim to my stuff is cheap, God's great power and his great grace also crucifies my claim to my way. And so after generosity, we got to talk about this second fruit, heart and soul unity. Look at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Now, why do I keep saying that heart and soul unity is far more costly than property selling generosity? Generosity is dying to my stuff. Unity is dying to myself. Generosity is just giving up my pay, but unity is giving up my way, and that is far more expensive to part with than anything I own. Think about this early church. You've got thousands of brand new baby believers in a hostile environment that hates them and wants to kill them with lots of money changing hands under untested leadership and a lot of uncertainty about the future. This is a recipe for a disunified disaster. It was in the early church And it certainly is in our church, in our day and age today. This is a critical time in our nation and our church's history because we are on edge and we are at odds with each other. And we are quick to speak today and we are quick to become angry. We are suspicious and mistrustful of each other. Pastor Scott Sauls calls our culture the call-out culture. Meaning that today we are more eager to catch someone in doing wrong than we are to catch them in doing good. We're looking for ways to be offended. We're looking for ways that somebody crosses a boundary and a line. We are at odds with each other and ready to pick a fight. And I know it's been fun in this season to blame everything on 2020. Like I've seen the memes and it's hilarious and 2020 is going down in flames and it's gonna take a lot of the blame 
But the problem is the calendar is going to change and it's going to be 2021 and Lord willing, there's going to be a vaccine for COVID and then I have nothing less to blame except for my own greedy, selfish, dark, unrepentant heart. There's no memes for that. (laughs) That's an ugly place to be. Paul doesn't pull any punches when he's talking to the church he planted in Corinth who is struggling with these same kind of things. Listen to the language he uses. He says, Corinth, you are still in the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Listen to this. Are you not being merely human? Paul just called a church he planted a bunch of human beings. That's an insult to a believer. Y'all are acting like a bunch of humans, like you're still in the flesh, like you're animated by your own desires. But that's not who you are as the church. You have been born again in the spirit. God is at the center of your life. The Holy Spirit animates everything you do. That's your heritage as a believer. Why would you ever walk around acting like a human being again? Isn't that a profound rebuke? Stop acting like a human and start acting like a Christian. That's what Paul is saying to the church. But the key to unity that comes to us in Acts is really surprising. It's really counterintuitive because when you start thinking about unity, you think, well, we've got a lot of like interpersonal work to do, right? Like we got to get in here and learn some tips so that we can size each other up and make sure everybody's cool with everybody else. And is everybody getting the fair amount of attention and everybody's getting the fair amount of of gifts that are being used and, and how can we do this together? But actually, unity in Acts doesn't come from eyes horizontal on each other. Unity in Acts comes from eyes that are set upward on God himself. Think about these scenes. Chapter 1, verse 14, it says that the church was gathered in one accord. How did they do that? How did they achieve one accordedness? It says by devoting themselves to prayer. Their unity was born with eyes on God himself. Chapter four, verse 24, the church spoke in one voice. How was she able to do that? All speak together. Quote, they lifted up their voices together to God. That's their unity. Tim Keller makes this point from his commentary on Romans. This is a punchy Uh, statement on unity that comes not from seeking unity for its own sake, but looking to God himself. He says, no method can create unity. It is from God, and it comes from a common following of Christ. God gives it as you follow Christ Jesus. This real unity does not come when we seek it directly. Rather, it is a byproduct of seeking something other than unity, namely seeking to follow Christ. And then he says this, passive Christians will not experience much unity. Only believers who are following hard, setting priorities for Christian growth and ministry will experience deep unity. Do you believe that? 
Do you believe that you in the flesh can skimp on means of grace and have a very light Bible reading plan and spend little time in prayer and spend very little time in thanksgiving to God for his precious gifts and then to get in a room of diverse people from different backgrounds, ages, and experiences and achieve miraculous unity? Tim Keller says no. Tim Keller says, if you are a passive Christian, set the bar very low for the church because we will devour one another. The moment we leave here feeling crummy about ourselves and not being unified and not being generous and we try to put a few practices into place to give a little more and be a little more kind to each other, then gospel generosity and unity will slip right through our best laid plans and make us grumpy givers and thorny friends. This ain't gonna work in the flesh. It's not gonna work with trust falls and drum circles and campfires. This is going to be wrought in the spirit and the spirit alone. But... If Christ is that aim and his great power and his great grace is the means, then God will do this thing. There will be property selling generosity. There will be heart and soul unity because God will use these fruits to that great and glorious end which is the purpose for which why we exist to glorify his name in heaven. Let's pray and give thanks. Lord Jesus, do this in our midst. Give us great power. Give us great grace. Make us a body that lives and breathes the gospel. Let us put down generosity and unity for their own sakes. They have no place here. We have no business with world charity and world friendliness. But instead, by your spirit, bond us together in the unity of Christ to give sacrificially of our stuff and ourselves together. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.